The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're headed to DNA and beyond. We're taking on the ancient and modern history of genetics and what heredity really means in the modern day with the award-winning science writer, Carl Zimmer. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. It seems like you can't turn around these days without running into one of those ads for a personal DNA test. Spit in a tube, mail off your saliva, and in a few weeks, you get access to all these details about yourself. You might find out you're part Viking or that you have a gene for your second toe to be longer than your big toe. On the other hand, you might find out that you've got a mutation that makes a certain kind of cancer more likely. Or that your dad is not actually your dad. Maybe Luke Skywalker needed one of those. (laughs) This is your genetic inheritance. But what does it mean? As scientists have learned more and more about genetics and how we pass on our characteristics, heredity itself has become more and more complex. To help us wend our way through the scientific maze is Carl Zimmer. He's a columnist at the New York Times and author of more than a dozen books. His writing has won many prizes, including the Stephen Jay Gould Award, which seems especially appropriate here. His latest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh. The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Carl, thank you so much for making the time for us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with a little bit of history. Where does the word heredity come from? The heredity comes from the Latin hereditas, and it actually doesn't really have that much to do with heredity the way we talk about it when we talk about, you know, having, um, you know, your mother's laugh or something like that. I mean, hereditas was just about the rules of inheriting stuff, um, how Romans could acquire the rights uh, from someone who had just died. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it really kind of gives you a glimpse into how uh, the way we think about heredity and talk about heredity and use heredity to um, kind of I build our own identities um, just really wasn't uh, wasn't something that was in the mix if you look at a culture like ancient Rome or ancient Greece. But we have always kind of wondered, you know, as a people like, hey, that kid looks a lot like her mom. And, you know, that sheep looks a lot like its mother's sheep. And after the agricultural revolution, people presumably knew that they were breeding things they wanted into animals and plants. And they probably recognized that, you know, family members tended to have these gigantic Habsburg jaws. What do we know about what ancient peoples thought about heredity? You know, I I don't actually think that they really thought in terms of, you know, explaining why uh, individuals resembled their ancestors. Uh, It's actually very hard to find any uh, evidence of that when you look at the surviving writing. Um, And, you know, I I would say actually that someone, let's say like Aristotle, um, if you ask them, well, ask him, well, why uh do people in each generation look like the previous generation? He might just say, well, it's just, it's just what you'd expect from development. You know, that if you combine substances together, it's almost, you know, we would think of it almost like uh, a chemical reaction. Uh, then it just works out the same way. Um, and he would liken it to the fermentation of cheese. Um, you know, you reliably make cheese out of milk when you uh, mix it with culture and it, it, it just happens. And, uh, you know, certainly they, they would talk about, uh, you know, why does, was that some people in some parts of the world were taller or shorter or looked different, but it was more, uh, in terms of the environment, you know, did people live in a place where it was cold or did people live in a place where it was rainy? And they really felt that, the sort of the the hallmarks of people who lived in different places just had to do with the uh, physical conditions uh, in which they grew up. And you do talk a little bit in your book um, about Aristotle um, and kind of what the Greeks and Romans thought about heredity. But I also was wondering in China um, at the same time, uh, around the time of the Greeks and Romans, they had an incredibly advanced civilization. And in the Middle Ages, when Europe was kind of, hmm, 
don't want to say dark ages because that sounds mean, but we weren't really making the most scientific advances. But the Middle East at that time was this haven for mathematical and scientific inquiry. Were other cultures thinking about heredity? What did people in the Middle East or in Asia think about inheritance in terms of characteristics? Um, you know, it's again, you don't really find a lot. Um, I mean, certainly every culture has uh, a way of thinking about uh, kinship and the the meaning of ancestors in their lives. Uh, and, but and, and those can differ from one culture to another. So you know, in some cultures in South America, for example, um, if a woman is pregnant, um, all the men that she has sex with while she's pregnant become the father of her child and they are expected to do all the things that fathers are supposed to do. Uh, and, and when they trace their ancestry, they're going to trace it through those fathers. Um, you have other cultures where the men trace their ancestry through their male ancestors, females to their females. And, and you, there are lots of different ways in which we, we, uh, make sense of our connections to other people. Um, but, you know, really to, to talk about heredity the way we talk about it now, uh, where you, you're saying, well, there's something invisible, microscopic, uh, that is passed down physically from one generation to the next. Um, you really do not, uh, you really do not see that, uh, in, in a lot of places. Um, you know, there are, Again, you know, in, in there are some Arabic scholars who were trying to um, uh, think about why uh, people looked physically different. Um, so, so you get some very early kind of references to what would later become uh, what we think of as races. You know, why was it that people in the near Near East looked different than the people f from Africa, for example? Um, but, um, but again, it's really hard to see. Uh, our own conception of heredity if we look in, into history very far. And I think that's an important lesson. And I think, you know, historians of science have really done a great service by uh, making that clear that we can't just assume that if we go back a thousand years or 2000 years, that everyone is thinking the way we think now. Um, the way we think about things is really is the product of history. But I did, when I was doing some research, actually, for this podcast, I came across this interesting thing. Did you know that in the Han Dynasty um, in China, they had a paternity test? And it was it worked. It was a test where they mixed the blood of a father with a child to see if it mixed. And it was actually, I mean, it didn't always work because type O blood is weird. But it was a, actually a crude blood type test that could determine paternity. So they were kind of thinking about this in a way. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Um, in in Europe, uh, in Rome, and then in, and then in Europe, which you know took on a lot of the traditions, the legal traditions in in Rome, there was a basically a standard of just a judge looking at uh, children and then looking at someone who was claimed to be their father and just deciding whether the kid looked like like this this man <laughs> it was called bald eagle evidence which basically means that um if something looks like a bald eagle it probably is a bald eagle uh, <laughs> and that actually was uh sort of the legal standard um really literally up until the 1900s until actually uh blood type became uh entered into uh evidence uh, as a way in courts as as a way of um of trying to determine who is who so you really better hope you have your father's nose, no matter how unfortunate that nose may be. Uh, well, you know, if, if you're going to claim in court that uh, he's your dad. <laughs> I hope it's a good nose. <laughs> and one of the things that you mentioned a little bit earlier is that some of this wondering about how people look different and why they look different is actually part of the origins of racism. Um, can you talk a little bit about where that came from and how, very unfortunately, racism has kind of set the tone for some aspects of modern genetics. So you can start to see people using the word race in the way that it became commonly used and is still used today to some extent in the 1400s. Um, and initially, there you're seeing it uh, used in the context of uh, books about breeding uh, certain kinds of animals. So this is a period where the aristocracy is starting to enjoy um, 
having you know certain quote unquote noble uh, breeds of of dogs, of birds of prey, like falcons, of horses. And so they'll talk about how you breed a, a noble race. Uh, of these animals. And then not long afterwards, you start to see uh, the, the word race or, or equivalence of that um, used for people. Uh, and uh, in Spain, um, y- you start to see uh, people making a distinction between the Jewish race and the old Christian race. Um, and there was a big deal made about the differences between the old Christians and the Jews, as, as well as the, uh, the Muslims uh, who were there in, in Spain. And um, so, for example, um, if you were of pure uh, old Christian uh, blood, as they would call it, um, that meant that you had very pale skin, and then you could actually see the blue veins uh, through your very light skin. Uh, and this is where the phrase blue blood comes from. Um, and so Spanish families in the nobility would actually go to great lengths to prove with genealogy that they had no Jews in their ancestry, uh, because that could be completely devastating to your ambitions uh, in terms of getting a powerful job and so on. God forbid. Yes, and and then you start to then then you not long after that, as um, Spain and other countries start to get into the slave trade, you start to see the term race being applied to um, Africans, and as they're colonizing the New World, you start to see uh, it being applied to Native Americans, and and gradually you you there is this growing distinction between groups of people that becomes more and more absolute. Uh, And so, you know, the outward characteristics like skin color or texture of hair or the shape of the face are supposed to represent these fundamental differences between groups of people, uh, which also, not coincidentally, justifies, you know, some groups being enslaved, other people, other other races are entitled to be masters and to own other people. Uh, and so, you know, very much um, the, the rise of these concepts of race um, really start to sort of distill certain ideas about heredity because, um, you know, it, it, people who are of African descent um, are, are said to inherit uh, a biblical curse, the curse of Ham, Noah's son. And so that actually uh, is re- reflected in their skin color and also is a justification for their being enslaved. Um, and so, um, you know, very much, you know, the way that people think about heredity in in, in our own species is is very influenced by the origin of racism. And how has that kind of continued in tone to the way we think about heredity and genetics now? Well, uh, so genetics as a science uh, pops into existence in 1900. Um, William Bateson, uh, among others, rediscovers Mendel and combines that with what everyone's learned about in terms of cell biology and says, we need a new science and I'm going to call it genetics. Uh, It's a science of heredity. Uh, And uh, so... Very quickly, people take uh, all the old language about heredity and kind of convert it into a new language of genes. So, for example, uh, the rate, you know, now instead of talking about, you know, do you have one drop of black blood, you know, there's this famous one drop rule um, so, uh, that in the United States. So, instead of one drop of blood, you know, you, people say, well, you know, are there, there must be these absolute genetic differences between the races. Uh, likewise, um, there are, uh, there, there's a growing kind of sense that some diseases may be hereditary um, and that, uh, you know, different levels of intelligence must be entirely due to heredity. And people are already talking about how, well, maybe we should control how people uh, reproduce um, what Francis Galton calls eugenics. Uh, and this is 20 years before the, the birth of genetics. But as soon as genetics comes on the scene, then a lot of geneticists say, okay, well, the, 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 the job of eugenics is to prevent the transmission of these, uh, these bad genes and to promote the spread of 
good genes. And they immediately plunge right into that with all sorts of um, calls for all sorts of different kinds of social policy, some of which are quite, uh, quite horrific, including sterilization and worse. Yikes. Now, you mentioned that Bateson came up with the kind of idea of genetics by rediscovering Gregor Mendel. Um, so to get back to something more pleasant, like plants, Gregor Mendel is one of the names that most people will probably actually recognize from this book. And I was particularly floored to find out that he was at work in the mid-1800s, because when I think of a monk doing scientific work, I think he must have existed earlier than that, like in the 1500s. I, all I can think about is that he must have existed in a time before pants. <laughs> no, he, he was quite, he was quite a, a modern uh, figure. You know, I think that we, um, we, we kind of uh, uh, give Mendel this, this strange, almost comic book quality um, uh, because he seems so mysterious to us. But, Really, uh, you know, historians of science have done have done important work in recent years to to show that Mendel was just a man of his time. He was a man of the you know of the of the industrial revolution. He was, uh, and he was uh, at an abbey that was actually quite dedicated to cutting edge scientific research. All sorts of scientific research was going on, uh, you know, at the abbey where he was, and and um, and he, you know he was. Studying heredity was one of many interests that he had in science. Uh, and studying heredity was not some bizarre thing that he was doing completely on his own. Lots of people all around were doing it. He was a member of a scientific society that was dedicated to trying to figure out the rules of heredity. And they were all thinking pretty much the same thing, which is that um, if they could, if they could really start to understand how breeding worked uh, and, and, and understand why it was that when you bred two individuals from different varieties, you got all sorts of strange patterns. If you could understand the nature of those patterns, you'd actually start to uncover the scientific laws of heredity. Uh, and, uh, and he, he managed to uh, succeed in, in finding these, these really striking almost mathematical patterns when he would cross pea plants together. Um, uh, unfortunately, he didn't quite know how to make sense of that, nor did any of his, his contemporaries, just because the rest of biology just wasn't mature enough. They didn't know enough about the cell. They didn't know about chromosomes. So it was hard for them to um, give his sort of abstract findings you know, sort of concrete meaning. And I think people know Gregor Mendel because, you know, he's in every single high school science textbook ever. Um, his pea plant studies with his little, the little Punnett square, you know, and you have your, your genes for your tall plants and your wrinkly peas and et cetera. And what he basically ended up discovering was actually monogenic traits, traits that were a single gene, basically, for tall plants or short plants. And people who have learned this, it's very easy to think when you learn this in high school that, okay, well, there's a gene for wrinkly peas and a gene for smooth peas, and there's a gene for tall plants and a gene for short plants. So there must be a gene for tall people and short people or a gene for wrinkly people and smooth people. But it's far more complex than that. It's so much so that some scientists are actually describing height, for example, as omnigenetic. Can you talk a little bit about how complex some of these traits are? Why are they so complex? Sure. So, so the, the, I talk a lot about height in, in uh, my book, partly because um, height is a trait that scientists have been studying in terms of its heredity, uh, perhaps the longest uh, because it's an easy thing to measure. You know, you just you just run a tape measure up next to someone and read off a number and then you check to see how tall their siblings or parents are and you're done. And th there's a Francis Galton did this research um, long before anyone discovered genetics and, uh, and DNA. And he could see that there was a very clear correlation between uh, tall parents and tall kids and short parents and short kids. It wasn't it wasn't always absolute, uh, but it was a strong enough pattern that you could actually study it mathematically. Um, and so then once genetics comes on the scene, um, people are thinking really very much in terms of single genes and trying to understand what each individual gene does. And there was a lot of you know, bad science that got done as a result of just focusing on single genes. Um, you know, people even thought that uh, intelligence 
or quote unquote feeble nematinous was controlled by a single gene. And so that led to a lot of eugenics uh, nonsense, really, that I talk about in the book. But the fact is that um, for many, many aspects of our lives, any one trait is influenced by lots and lots of genes on top of the environment. Uh, and the flip side is true that each gene probably influences a lot of different traits. Uh, and so, you know, when scientists started to look for the genes for height uh, in the 1990s, it took them a while because, you know, the first gene that they found that was really responsible for variation among a lot of people, uh, they found in 2007, after a lot of struggle, looking at thousands of people, and it turns out it only influences your height around an eighth of an inch. So like putting on a pair of socks or taking them off. Uh, <laughs> and then they found more genes and, and more genes and more genes, each of which has an even smaller impact on height. Um, right now, they're up to over 3,000, the latest count that I saw. Uh, and uh, there are some scientists, such as Jonathan Pritchard at Stanford University, who say that you know if we keep looking and look at more and more people and compare their DNA and their height, we're going to keep finding more of these genes um, until we basically find them all across the genome. Uh, and his term for this is omnigenic. Um, so you know, we Mendel was looking at things that were monogenic, and uh, Pritchard is saying we're looking at traits that are omnigenic, which kind of raises some serious questions about, you know, what it is that we're actually uh, looking for when scientists are just, you know, building up these bigger and bigger catalogs of genes. You know, if the whole genome influences all these traits, then what are you actually learning by making this increasingly long catalog? Um, but other scientists argue like, well, actually, if we we can we can identify certain pathways that are particularly important for things like height or you know risks of getting risk of getting diabetes and so on, and from that you can get insights about how diseases are caused and maybe even be able to find new treatments for them. And as part of this uh, book, you actually went and got your own genome sequenced. How how was it? <laughs> it was. Uh, how do you feel? <laughs> I feel pretty good, you know. I, it was a fascinating experience. Uh, I, you know, this was uh, different than what people do when they get their their DNA tested at 23andMe. Um, you know, uh, 23andMe or Ancestry.com or these other companies. You know, they they basically take a sampling of your DNA. They they look at variations in about one in a thousand positions in in the genome. Uh, whereas I had the opportunity to get my whole genome sequenced and then to um, bring it to scientists and say, um, can you help me make sense of this? <laughs> because, you know, on your own, it's very hard to figure out what it is you're looking at. Um, you know, thankfully, I don't carry mutations that cause me serious diseases. You know, I'm a carrier for a couple diseases, but my children have not inherited them because my wife is not a carrier. Um but beyond that, you know, you can really sort of dig deeper and find all sorts of fascinating things. And it's, it's sort of an opportunity to learn more about sort of human biology in general, just by looking at the mutations that you have. So, you know, on the one hand, I have a mutation that on average makes people a little bit heavier than they would be otherwise, um, because it affects how your cells turn energy into heat or into fat. Um, and what's fascinating with that is that, you know, people who were born in the 1940s or earlier, for them, it, that mutation doesn't actually cause that kind of weight shift. Um, and people think that that might be because the environment has changed, you know, so they were growing up uh, in a sort of a world where food is fairly scarce. And we're living in a world where food, especially carbohydrates and sugar, are incredibly abundant. And so in this new environment, having that variant is not such a good thing. Um, so, you know, just all sorts of lessons like that kind of emerge once you start to dive into a genome. And I just happen to dive into mine. And you're letting other people dive into your genome now, right? Well, yeah, you know, so I had these scientists do all this research on it, which uh, I, I used um, to uh, work on my book. And, uh, you know, some of them said like, hey, you know, like this was really interesting. Um, and it would be a shame to just not make use of this data ourselves. You know, like we want to we want to sort of carry this forward. And, you know, in the end, what we decided was um, 
I would just post my genome on on one of their uh, websites, and they would put all their their analysis up there as well, and just make it uh, freely available. And actually, this this scientist, Mark Gerstein at Yale, he has been now using my genome in his class, where he just basically tells the students to look at my genome, use the tools that he's providing them with, and address some interesting question about human biology just using my genome as a as a as a test case and so you know it's, for the past couple of years i've gone into class and these undergraduates have given me reports about my genome and you know i keep discovering more and more things about it uh, thanks to their work do you ever worry about the privacy of your genome i mean you know because this is not it's not just you, it's your kids and your grandkids and, you know, their kids. Sure. And my parents. Uh, yeah. My brother. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's certainly something to be mindful of. Um, and, I, you know, my view is that, um, you know, I think that people should have uh, autonomy uh, on these issues um, and should have the right to make these sorts of decisions. So I talked with you know, those people who share a lot of my DNA in common. And, uh, you know, they were okay with it. And, and you know, I personally felt that, you know, putting my genome out there um, was not going to uh, cause me problems and certainly that didn't outweigh the, the, the benefits I saw of making a genome available for people to do, to do research on or to, to use for education. Um, that was my choice. Um, but, you know, we really are entering an age where um, that these issues about privacy um, are becoming more and more urgent. Um, so, you know, if if your cousin decides to put their DNA on, uh, you know, any site, really, like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or a, 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 a crowdsourced site like GEDmatch, um, in effect, they're putting some of your DNA on there as well, because, you know, cousins share a number of long identical stretches of DNA. That's because you inherit them from your recent ancestors. And we saw this uh, in action with the uh, arrest of the Golden State Killer. And they, they zeroed in on, the, on this uh, suspect by taking DNA from crime scenes and uh, uploading it into one of these sites, GEDmatch, and uh, and then uh, basically saying, "Aha! Like whoever this person is, is you know a distant cousin of these these people in this database. And if we work out their genealogy, we now have a set of possible suspects. And then they narrow down." Um, to one person, and then when they obtained his DNA, it turned out to be an exact match. Um, you know, it's great to take a serial killer off the streets, but <laughs> on the other hand, you know, it uh, it does raise some important issues about privacy, about the Fourth Amendment in terms of you know uh, searches from the government, um, and you know, I don't, you know, we really haven't uh, come to terms with all those issues yet. I mean, there are some, uh, there are some bills that states and the federal and Congress are considering, um, but it's still very early stages. And already we can see with the Golden State Killer just how powerful um, this kind of approach can be. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, it's important to think about that, that sort of an issue and, and kind of decide, you know, it becomes difficult because so many people are uploading to Jetmatch and stuff like that. I mean, that's publicly available. It's a crowdsourced platform. Are they all talking with their families and saying, Hey, I'm putting our DNA up there. No, I, 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 you'd have to ask them, but I certainly have not uh, heard of people uh, talking that way. And, you know, the same goes for, um, you know, these much more uh, uh, popular commercial sites. I mean, 10 million people have put their DNA up on Ancestry.com alone. Uh, and many of them are combining that DNA with genealogical information. And so, uh, you know, you can, if you have access to that data, you can find out something about, uh, you know, the sort of the genetic profile of mi many millions more people who are just related to all these people who have uh, participated in this. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I've got lots of more questions about mosaics. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back. I'm here with Carl Zimmer the author of She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potentials of Heredity. Um, Carl, I, one of the things I love about this book is that many people have been told all of these things about heredity and about genetics. And you go through and you talk about the history of genetics, and then you also talk about what, where genetics and heredity are now, and you tear so many of those things that we all thought we knew to shreds. <laughs> and I love that. And one of those things is that many people have been told all our lives that all of our cells contain the same DNA, except for our germ cells, which are our sperm and our eggs, and those contain half. And it turns out the phrase exact same DNA is a misnomer. Can you talk Abs a little bit about mosaics? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, this is, and th this really does get to the heart of how we think about ourselves as individuals just in terms of our genes. I mean, you really think of uh, every cell in your body as having exactly this identical DNA. You know, if you, if there, if there was a D different, uh, DNA sequence in some of your cells, you think, well, those aren't mine. Uh, that that's what what's that doing there? Um, so it's understandable to think that way because we think of ourselves as simply descending uh, from a fertilized egg that divides, and you know, you get this whole lineage of cells that becomes you know the thirty trillion odd cells in our body. But the fact is that as those cells divide. Um, they mutate an awful lot. They gain new mutations as they're dividing within the embryo and even beyond. And so, you know, one cell that mutates is going to pass down those mutations to its own descendants. It's sort of a what I call an inner heredity. And after a while, you are going to be able to distinguish uh different groups of cells by their different mutations, by their signatures of mutations. And scientists uh, call this pattern mosaicism. They, they named it after the mosaics, those tiles that uh, were used to make uh, artworks. And so we're all mosaics and, you know, we, we have these, these different mutations in different cells and, and it can, uh, have all sorts of implications, not just for how we think about ourselves, but actually our health. Um, so you can actually have some cells in your body mutate. And then, you know, in some cases, that is what gives rise to cancer. Um, in other cases, uh, you can actually have what looks like a hereditary disorder, something that you inherited from your parents. But in fact, it arose genetically in some of your cells. And in my book, I, I focus on one example where um, a child uh, had this, what looked like a hereditary heart disorder. Um, but it was very confusing because the scientists would take a blood sample and they doing one test on the, on the blood, they'd say, aha, you see, here's this mutation that this child has that causes this heart problem. And then they do a different test and they'd be like, wait, there's no mutation at all. And the problem was they were looking at different sets of cells inside this child's body. And actually, only after this child actually had a heart transplant and they were actually able to look at her heart, her, her removed heart, they were able to see that her heart itself was a mosaic. It contained cells that were perfectly normal and then cells that had a mutation that can cause a heart disease. Uh, and, you know, scientists are really just kind of starting to get their, their heads around what mosaicism means uh, for us in terms of our health, in terms of genetic testing. It's a, just a huge uh, uh, universe that's opening up for them. And as you said, you know, normally you would think if I came across a, a thing, uh, my, some DNA from a cell and it was different from mine, I might say, oh, that's that's not mine, but it might be a mosaic. But then again, it also might not be yours. Can you talk about the difference between mosaics and chimeras? Because I think this will blow a lot of people's minds. So people might be familiar with chimeras as the monsters of 
Greek mythology. Um, you know, these were beasts that had part lion and part snake and part goat. Uh, in other words, they were like a combination of, of different animals all smushed together. Um, scientists uh, use that term to refer to uh, people and, and animals where uh, they are actually made up of combinations of cells that actually started out in different organisms. Um, and so with people, for example, um, twins uh, in the womb can actually trade cells between each other. And then those cells kind of take root in each of them and develop into all the different tissues in their bodies. And so you can be um, someone walking around uh, with uh, you know, cells from a fraternal twin. And actually, this actually can be can lead to some amazing uh, kinds of confusions. Um, so there are, have actually been women who have given birth to children and then later uh when you know they're doing some testing in one case a woman was tested to see about uh whether her kids could be suitable uh kidney donors they don't match in other words when you when you look at <laughs> the the dna of these children and their mother you would say this woman is not their mother <laughs> You know, and this is very strange for these women because, like, they were there when they gave birth, and yet, you know, science is telling them that they are not the the mother of their own children. Um, and so, uh, so this this kind of chimerism is proving to be more and more uh, common. You really just have to look for it um, to start to see it. Uh, another way that uh, people become chimeras is unique to women who have children. Uh, so when a woman is pregnant, cells from the fetus are going to circulate around in her bloodstream. And now it's even possible uh, to draw some blood from a pregnant woman and isolate the fetal cells and even be able to sequence a fetus's entire genome that way. After a woman gives birth, most of the fetal cells go away from the bloodstream. Um, but in some cases, it seems that uh, some women hold on to some of those fetal cells. Um, and actually, those cells then take root in her body. And because they're fetal cells, they they can take on uh, the profile of different tissues. They can become neurons in the brain. They can become part of the thyroid gland or part of the liver. Uh, and uh, they may actually provide uh, some benefit to women. Um, there's some studies where uh, scientists have looked at how wounds heal. And in women who are chimeras, it looks as if the fetal cells rush into these wounds and help to repair them. Uh, and so maybe, you know, it's possible for mothers to take advantage of this regenerative power of their children's <laughs> cells to help heal their heal their own wounds. Um, it, it's again, like this is, you know, really sort of uh, the, the frontier of, of biology that we're dealing with. And, you know, there's a lot of research yet to really pin down what it means to be a chimera. But, you know, being a chimera is not the stuff of Greek mythology. Um, lots of people are walking around who are living chimeras. So you're saying that my hopes for having the rear of a goat are still no good. Well, you know, maybe uh, maybe a little genetic engineering. We'll see. <laughs> Give it like 20 years. And one of the things that I read about in your book that I found really fascinating is kind of this, I guess you could call it where mosaics and chimeras collide. Um, in that mosaics, um, the, these mutations that arise in somatic cells can actually become things like tumors <laughs> and cancer. And then those cancers can sometimes transmit themselves to another individual, making that individual a chimera who also has cancer. Can you talk a little bit about Tasmanian devils? Because this was insane and it blew my mind. And I honestly thought Tasmanian devils were dying of a virus. And it turns out I, I was wrong. Yeah. So this is uh, one of these many astonishing stories that you come across when you start really digging into what heredity is and what it can be. Uh, so uh, in the uh, 1990s, uh, Tasmanian devils started dying of a strange new disease. They were 
developing a very fast-growing kind of cancer that formed a tumor on their face, uh, around their mouth usually. And uh, it would grow really fast. And a lot of times the animals just died because just the sheer volume of the tumor blocked their airway so they couldn't eat anymore. Uh, and and n- nobody really knew what was going on because it was just – all these Tasmanian devils were were developing it. And, and it seemed to be spreading like an epidemic. Now – it is true that viruses can cause certain forms of cancer. Um, and in people, <clears throat> cervical cancer is caused by human papillomavirus. But, you know, research revealed that this was not a virus. Uh, in, if it was a virus, then if you looked at the tumors, they would have the DNA that you found in the rest of the Tasmanian devil's body. You know, obviously, it would be a mosaic, so there would be some genetic differences. But you could confidently say, okay, these cells belong to this Tasmanian devil. Instead, these Tasmanian devils were chimeras. When you looked at the DNA in these cancer cells, you said, well, this, wait, this comes from a different Tasmanian devil. Somehow, a cancer from another animal got into this animal, and it was the cancer itself that was spreading like an epidemic. And what scientists then figured out eventually was that um, some Tasmanian devil in the 80s maybe uh, developed a, a certain kind of cancer, probably a, probably a cancer uh, of the nerves, maybe around in the face. Tasmanian be- devils bite each other's faces when they're fighting uh, or, or having even during courtship. They're really nasty animals. and um, critters. <laughs> Yeah, and so they would bite off a bit of this tumor, and they, and they would ingest it, and then those cells, instead of being digested and destroyed, they would make their way back to the face of that biting devil and grow a new tumor, and then that devil would get bitten by another devil, and then it would spread on that way. And this has actually happened at least twice independently, they found, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, re- it's amazing that, you know, you could you could argue some have argued that this cancer is in effect a new species you know it's it it uh it is an organism that it moves around through the world on its own in a way very different than the tasmanian devils um and now what's really astonishing is that it, it turns out that there are Several other examples uh, of the same thing, of contagious cancer. Uh, and the most uh, widespread one turns out to be in dogs. There is a disease in dogs, a kind of cancer that is spread uh, when, they ha- when they have sex and they're rubbing their skin against each other. Uh, and then the little tumors grow around their genitals. And then um, actually the immune system usually kills them off. Uh, but they manage to spread from dog to dog. And they have been spreading for over 10,000 years. Uh, and so, you know, th- these tumors descend from a dog that lived um, maybe in the last ice age or right at, right, right at the end of the last ice age. Um, and the most recent addition to the pantheon of contagious cancers is now uh, shellfish. So scientists are finding that certain kinds of clams and other shellfish in the ocean are – have contagious cancer, where the cancer cells are actually floating through seawater and getting into uh, new hosts. And so it got to yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say it's got to be extra bad because they can float through seawater. I mean, they can go anywhere. That's right. I mean, it's a little disconcerting to think that you know you're swimming around in the ocean and you're swimming around with cancer cells that are floating around and may land in a new host. Um, that's just. That's just what's going on. I mean, there's no. This has been clearly documented now that there is contagious cancer in the ocean. Well, and you're also swimming around with like barnacle sperm. <laughs> I mean, you're swimming. Yep. The ocean is is kind of gross, honestly. <laughs> no, let's not even talk about the viruses. Ooh. Now, this kind of leads into another section of your book where you talk about not just genetic methods of inheritance, but there are also I guess you might call it gene-adjacent methods of passing on things. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about epigenetics and how it's supposed to work. Sure. So so genetics is the science of, of genes, which are encoded in DNA, and, and then how uh, they're passed down from generation to generation and, and influence our biology. Um, 
Epigenetics um, is kind of a loose term that encompasses a lot of things, but I, I think the simplest way to define it would be basically all the molecules that are controlling how those genes work. Uh, and so, you know, genes only um, uh, are active and produce proteins if the molecules in the cell allow them to. Uh, and, you know, these molecules can also shut genes down. Um, they can clamp onto them uh, in a sort of long-term way, or they can coil up DNA and basically hide it from the gene-reading machinery of the cell. Um, and in our bodies, when, when cells divide in an organ, um, that epigenetic signature gets passed down to the daughter cells. That's the term for them, daughter cells. They inherit the sort of epigenetic signature, which is which is why when your skin cells divide, they produce more skin instead of producing, you know, a tooth or a little brain or something. And so, you know, they're clearly epigenetics is, in, is central to how we develop and how we sort of maintain our bodies through our lives. Um, what's fascinating is that um, the, the environment seems to have some influence potentially on that epigenetic signature. So that if you smoke cigarettes or experience stress, uh, there, there can be some long-term changes uh, to your cells in terms of their epigenetics. And that, and that changes how the genes function in, in effect. And so think, where things are really uh, fascinating but also controversial is the question of whether you know, experience causing changes to epigenetics can then get passed down to the next generation. So so is it possible for the experiences of parents to affect their not just their own children but their grandchildren great children and so on. Um and and you know th this whole area has generated a huge amount of, you know, popular attention, you know, headlines on epigenetics all the time and you can take epigenetic yoga if you want. I mean it's it's really penetrated pop culture in, in a big way. But, um, you know, in my book, I really caution that, you know, the evidence for this is quite spotty, particularly for humans. So we don't want to start like making grand uh, statements about what's going on um, until we really have better evidence. Right, because there's this, there's a couple of papers suggesting that fathers, for example, could pass some form of memory down into their sperm via epigenetics. But that idea is especially controversial because there's also evidence that when cells become sperm, their DNA gets stripped of the epigenetic kind of flags that affect the expression of that DNA. Has that idea of DNA stripping been disproven? Is it limited to specific species? So the, uh, the particular kind of epigenetic um, controls we're talking about here are these um, molecules, uh, sometimes called methyl groups. And so DNA can be methylated. Um, and so essentially you have these, these molecules clamped onto DNA at different places in order to silence genes. Um, so... Dur during the production of eggs and sperm, the the epigenetic marks are removed and then put back. But you know, it's it's not a hundred percent clear how thorough that removal is. You know, some people uh, have uh, found evidence that well, maybe some of them stay remain stuck on the DNA through the whole process, um, and um, a lot of scientists are actually looking to other kinds of epigenetics as a possible explanation for some of these tantalizing results. Um, you know, if you stress male mice and then um, have them mate, their offspring and, you know, further generations seem to have a kind of disturbed response to stress as well, even though they haven't, all they've gotten from their, their fathers or grandfathers is, is that sperm. Um, so some scientists have pointed out, well, you know, there are lots of RNA molecules inside of our cells, and these, you know, single-stranded RNA molecules, uh, among other things, they uh, help to turn genes on and off. And so maybe there are some particular RNA molecules that are delivered in the sperm 
and they're the ones that kind of somehow carry on this this epigenetic signature through the generations. And so there have been experiments where you take out the RNA molecules from sperm and then put them into uh, the sperm of mice that you know haven't had some stressful experience, and then they seem to produce offspring that are kind of disturbed in the way that the original experiment suggested. So, you know, there there are a lot of critics who say like, well, these results are small, and and this is just these, it's just sort of a random uh, result. Um, but uh, but they're certainly tantalizing. Yeah. And, you know, in the last part of your book, you take some of these tantalizing results, both from epigenetics, but also just genetics, and talk about kind of the dizzying speed at which <laughs> genetics has been moving forward and, and gene editing technologies, what we're doing with them, how people can, for example, test embryos before they're born, resulting in genetically selected and modified offspring. And by modified, I mostly mean things like Maybe they genetically select them so they don't have this terrible heritable disease, for example. But, you know, it could be said that now we have GMO people, you know, who have been carefully selected. These topics are obviously pretty controversial. Did you talk to any ethicists for your book about how we should be approaching these topics? Yeah, I, I, I've sort of had ongoing conversations with, um, with bioethicists, with genetics counselors, with others about uh, the ethical issues here, because uh, you know we really need to dis- make some decisions uh, as so- a society about um, what's going to happen and what isn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and you know, I, I th- there have been some surveys that have been taken where people actually feel kind of okay with the prospect of using gene editing technologies like CRISPR to eradicate um, hereditary diseases like Huntington's disease. Um, now, but, you know, then, but there are other cases where uh, it's it's a lot fuzzier and I don't think really know uh, sort of as a society what we're going to do about it. I mean, what if parents say, well, I'd like my child to be tall. I'm not tall. I'd like my child to be tall. Um, you know, parents already are, are getting doctors to give their children growth hormone when in many cases it's not actually medically necessary. Um, and so there's good reason to think that there will be parents will be interested in, you know, rejiggering the genes of their children in the, in the attempt to make the, their children taller. Um, so is that okay? I mean, should, do parents have that right uh, to not just alter their children at the genetic level, but future generations. Um, you know, these are, this is not science fiction anymore. This is, you can see a pretty clear path of development to getting to the point where that, that could be something that parents could get if they wanted it. Um, it may not be possible like literally right now, but it's not going to take very long. And so, you know, we need to have these discussions, you know, what about, you know, so people in, uh, Communities like uh, the deaf community, or uh, you know, people with short stature, um, you know, they're going to say like, "Well, wait a minute, like, you know, I don't think of you know my my height as being a disability." You know, I you know what what we need is for society to you know be more accommodating, you know, to people like me, um, rather than saying, "Oh, this is a pathology that we need to strip away from future generations." Um, and, and, you know, those are important, uh, important, uh, viewpoints to, to think about. Um, so, you know, these conversations have kind of started, but, um, you know, in, in the big, uh, hue and cry about politics and everything else, uh, on our minds, um, this doesn't get as much as attention as I think it needs. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, one of the things I, I really like about this book is how you delicately, delicately tear down a lot of things that people thought they knew about genetics. <laughs> what do you think is the one thing that people most mis- misunderstand about heredity? Um, I, th- you know, I think that uh, we look at uh, heredity in terms of genes that we inherited from our ancestors and that that um, 
is the explanation for why we are the way we are. And I think the most striking illustration of that is how um, these companies uh, who do genetic testing are advertising themselves to us. You know, they're trying to get us to buy their product. And so I think they are, they are you know, doing what companies do. They, they play on, on the desires of the consumer public. And I just saw an ad the other day where um, the, there was a company offering testing for Father's Day. And so there, you'd see these kids looking up lovingly at their fathers. And one kid's voiceover says, my dad discovered that his ancestors come from the highlands of northern Mexico where, you know, people, you know, run long distances every day. And then you see a picture of that father and his kid, like, going for a run in the woods. You know, as if, oh, you come from some, you know, tribe of running people and there's therefore like running is in your blood and you just feel this urge to run. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, honestly like that is kind of ridiculous, you know, Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I think we need to resist the urge when we get these these genetic results to sort of say, aha, this is the full answer to who I am. Uh, It's not. I mean, there's lots of fascinating things you can learn when you when you get these test results, but you really need to dig in. You need to read that fine print that they provide to you, and you need to sort of take that as the starting point. And you also need to recognize that the results you're getting from them are just sort of the best that science can offer right now. And, you know, in terms of ancestry, for example, you go to different companies, you're going to get different percentages because they're going to be looking at different uh, databases of different populations. They're going to use different statistical models. So they're not lying to you. It's just that they're not supposed to be unveiling to you some sort of absolute truth. Well, I I do think that uh, in the commercial, is she referring to the Tara Umara of Mexico? um, It's a tribe of runners in the Copper Canyons. Uh, I, I don't know if they mentioned – I don't recall if they mentioned them by name, but certainly, you know, they're just sort of describing these these running people. And, um, you know, it's just it's just this strange sort of uh, echo of, of the sort of simplistic uh, hereditarianism, you know, that makes you say like, oh, if I descend from a certain kind of people, then I must do all the things that they do. Or, you know, why is it that I like tell- telling stories? Oh, because I descend from a-, a line of storytellers and I can prove it with my DNA. Um, it totally uh, ignores the the vital role of culture, which I, I actually argue in the book is its own form of inheritance. Uh, and I think need, people need to appreciate that uh, – uh, you can't just, you know, give genes all of this agency that ads like this imply. So your genes are not your destiny; they're only part of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, your genes can be your destiny in certain cases. You know, I mean, if you inherit one copy of uh, the mutation for Huntington's disease, well, you know, that is going to uh, really shape your whole life. I mean, it, uh, and there's no way around it, but. Uh, you can't sort of extend that to uh, you know the 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 more complex parts of our existence um, and 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 you know our social lives and so on. I mean, genes do have influences. There's no doubt about it in terms of for personality and intelligence and all sorts of things. They have an influence, but to simply say like, aha. Here's my genetic report. I will understand completely who I am just by reading these variants. Uh, You're going to be disappointed. Well, on that happy note, Carl, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. We've linked to more information about Carl Zimmer and his new book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential for Heredity at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you will also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can follow us around, you can subscribe to the show, you can leave us a happy, friendly review, and... Thank you so much for all the people who've supported us on Patreon. We have a link to Patreon where you can donate to support our hardworking podcast crew. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. 
Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 